Friday Lunchtime Lectures at the Open Data Institute. Great pleasure to introduce Professor Ross Anderson uh, from uh, Cambridge University. He's Professor of Security Engineering there and has been a trenchant supporter and defender of, uh, of, of, of personal information um, and the limits uh, to what should or could be done with that. And he's going to talk to us today about a slew of issues around uh, that important topic. Uh, we were talking earlier about how in the Open Data Institute we are deeply uh, committed to uh, a clear distinction between open data as a class and personal data as a class of information. And you need to be extremely careful and diligent about where those two elements come into contact. Uh, but I'm sitting more over to Ross. Thank you. Thanks, Nigel. Um, the topic of my talk today is why anonymity fills because we have just recently seen a very, very high-profile failure of anonymity um, in that Britain's Hospital Episode Statistics Database has been sold um, to somewhat over a 1,000 customers, um, both academic and uh, commercial, some of them overseas. Hospital Episode Statistics consists of basically one record for each Finnish consultant episode. So if you go to accident and emergency or if you're admitted for a procedure, there's a record made up with what was wrong with you, what was done, who treated you, how much it costs and so on and so forth. And as you can imagine, this data is of interest to a number of people. So the synopsis is that health data are moving to the cloud and this causes all sorts of issues around safety and privacy. And we've got a problem in Britain in that the open data ideals have been deliberately perverted to the um, business of supplying personal health information for secondary use. And this is now becoming a slow-motion train wreck because everybody from drug companies to insurers wants access. Just yesterday, we learned when the Health and Social Care Information Centre disclosed its customer list that they gave health statistics to over a 1,000 firms. And they claimed that this data was non-sensitive because it had been anonymised. Uh, and these claims were false. Now, the first driver, the big public driver, uh, for access to health records that you may have heard of was in 2008, when the previous government said that it was going to set up a secondary care record service that would allow us all to see our medical records. And this was implemented in Scotland with the summary care record system there. Um, and as soon as it was switched on, uh, a doctor in um, Falkirk somewhere went and looked at Gordon Brown's records and Alex Simon's and Kirsty Works and so on, causing a bit of a fuss. It was decided not to prosecute him because this wasn't in the public interest. Various other firms had a go. Uh, Google built a health system, Microsoft built a health system, and pretty well without exception, these were discontinued for lack of interest. Uh, why should this happen? Well, when you talk to the people who were involved in these projects, the average person has got no interest whatsoever in his health record for the 95% of your life when you're um, sprightly and bouncing around. And the other 5% of the time, when you're on your back in intensive care, you're not in a position uh, to look at it. So it turned out that there basically isn't consumer interest, and Trish Greenhalgh of UCL um, did a, a very thorough study of health space, the, UK, the English government offering, which showed that only a handful of people ever took, took up on it. So who does want access? Well, we've got a story from Iceland in 1998. They basically sold the nation medical records to Roche, a Swiss drug company, in return for which 
um, Roche's local agent, Decode, built a health IT system for the Icelandic Health Service. And the idea there was that records would be de-identified by removing the name and address and replacing them with an encrypted social security number. And, in fact, the encryption process was done in the Icelandic Information Commissioner, so it was outside the control of Roche, and on the face of it appeared to be sound. But when we looked at it, it turned out to be very, very easy to re-identify patients. If you wanted to know what the pseudonym of the Prime Minister was, for example, all you'd have to do would be get a nurse that you paid off to write him a prescription for aspirin and look at the database and see where the aspirin prescription pitched up, and that pseudonym would have been David Odson, the Prime Minister. So the Icelandic Medical Association persuaded 11% of the citizens to opt out. They ran a court case, and the Icelandic Supreme Court found that the system should have been opt-in rather than opt-out, whereupon it collapsed. The interesting thing is that the Icelandic Supreme Court relied on the same European law, which, thanks to the Human Rights Act, is also law here. So what is the European law? Well, the leading case is IV Finland, um, And Miss I was a nurse in Helsinki who was HIV positive. And the university hospital there uh, had the feature that all clinicians could see all patients' records. So all her nursing colleagues could see her HIV status, and she was also a patient there. And so they basically um, hounded her out of her job. She sued for compensation and finally got it from Strasbourg, where the judges decided that we as European citizens have got the right to restrict our personal health information to the clinicians who are caring for us. Now now that that's settled European case law, there is no way that a British government can change this using its majority. Not even a coalition government that's got a majority in both houses of parliament. To change this, to escape from this, Britain would have to abrogate the European Convention of Human Rights, which would mean withdrawing from the Council of Europe, and it would also have to leave the European Union now that the ECHR principles have been incorporated into the EU's basic law. So that is a hard stop for the Department of Health's ambitions in this respect. What does public opinion say? There have been various surveys over the past 20 or 30 years, and this is fairly typical, um, where people were asked in the run-up to the summary care record whether they'd approve a central records database with no opt-out, those who tended to oppose or strongly opposed uh, added up to 53% of the total. When you ask similar questions about the use of records in research, you find that typically 80% of people will um, approve the use of their records for research, provided they're asked first, but will object if they're not asked. And a substantial minority uh, of those people will object to their records being used by a for-profit institution. So with consent, the use of records by Cambridge University or Oxford University or Newcastle University or whatever is okay for most people, uh, but selling the stuff to Glaxo or Roach or whatever is beyond a red line. There are not just privacy issues here. There are also issues um, which come across as privacy issues but actually are uh, on, on a different basis. An interesting thing from the SCR debate was that the Catholic Bishops' Conference took the view that um, religious women had to be able to insist that their records would not be used for certain types of research, such as research on contraception and abortifacients. And if they were not able to insist on that, then they should simply opt out of all research altogether. And if you look at today's Lancet, 
Um, there is an article in there which echoes that, which says that the consent mechanisms proposed for care.data are, are inadequate because they do not, for example, let people consent for non-profit research while withholding consent for commercial research. So that's the legal and um, public opinion background. The policy background is that David Cameron announced in January 2011 that every patient in the NHS would be a research patient, that the NHS would make anonymized data available to researchers, both academic and commercial, but with an opt-out. Now, by that time, we'd already seen some issues with likely anonymized information. For example, there'd been a laptop stolen from a trust in North London with over 8 million people's likely anonymized records on it. And the following year, in 2012, um, <coughs> a system called CPRD, the Clinical Practice Research Data Link, went live, uh, making information available from some existing NHS databases to academic and commercial researchers. In fact, from last December, CPRD um, information has been available for sale in the USA. From sometime this year, there will be a GP extraction service, as it's called, which will hoover up your GP records unless you opt out and will make them available through a number of gateways. The story around this is that your record will be made anonymous. So the big question here from the technical information security point of view is how easy is it to anonymize health records? Well, the, the people um, pushing for this um, are the government's chief scientific advisor, Sir Mark Walcott, who used to run the Wellcome Trust, uh, the biggest medical research charity, and Tim Kelsey, who used to run Dr. Foster's, um, a health IT firm who um, got hired after the election as David Cameron's transparency tsar. And instead of pushing the open data agenda that uh, uh, Nigel and many people in this room have been working on, he instead pushed the agenda of making health records available to all in lightly anonymized form under the banner of transparency. So in some sense, um, Tim has been hijacking your gig. So let's look at the um, technical aspects of inference control. Now, this is also known as statistical security or statistical disclosure control, and it started as a subject round about 1980 with the U.S. Census. There was a, a young lady called Dorothy Denning, uh, bet her boss that she would be able to work out his salary from the information that the U.S. Census proposed to publish. No, he said, you couldn't possibly do that. We've designed it well enough. So she went and did it and um, wrote a paper about it, and this kicked off uh, a, a whole series of research. Um, and once you make databases available online so that people can make multiple overlapping queries, then all sorts of interesting attacks on statistical um, disclosure control techniques uh, become possible. Let me give you an example. So it's common, for, for example, to say that you can only answer a query in the database if it will relate to more than a certain number of people. So they've got a database in New Zealand where they'll answer a health query only if it relates to six or more patients. Now, suppose you were to use that in, let's say, freedom of information requests about staff salaries at our university. So if I wanted to find out what the salary of my colleague Anne Copestake was, she's the only lady professor of computer science, and if the system would allow me to make queries mm -hmm. on six or more individuals, 
then it's easy. I just ask, what's the average salary of all male professors and what's the average salary of all professors? And then some primary school arithmetic gives me the answer. Now, it gets more complex than that because I could just as easily ask, what's the average salary of all non-professors and all male non-professors, right? And work backwards from the total salary bill. And once you start looking at this in detail, it turns out that it is extraordinarily easy to manufacture trackers, as they're called, for almost all sensitive statistics. So are there cases where you can use anonymization uh, to protect privacy? Well, here's an example of one of the few cases in which it actually works. This is a system source informat- in, the, in the law case, Source Informatics versus Department of Health, which set the relevant UK law. Um, and I examined this on behalf of the, uh, the BMA back in the 1990s. And what source informatics were doing was collecting doctors' prescribing data in order to sell this to drug companies so that drug companies could figure out how much commission to pay their sales staff. So the idea was that you'd go to a town, say like Newmarket, with 20 GPs, and you'd give each GP a number, Doctor 1, Doctor 2, Doctor 3, and so on. And then in each week, you'd simply put down the number of prescriptions that each doctor had written of a particular type or brand of drug. And Source Informatics thought, well, you know, surely this protects doctors' privacy well enough. Um, But if you look here, you'll see that Here's Doctor 2 in week 3, writes only three prescriptions. So if you happen to be Glaxo's sales rep for Newmarket, you say, ah, that's Susan Smith at the Guildhall practice. She was away skiing in the third week in January. Okay, so you see it's it's, it's not straightforward. And what we ended up after a number of rounds of analysis and and, and fixing um, was that instead of giving absolute numbers of prescriptions, it would give relative numbers of prescriptions, in other words, market share, and the rows would be randomly perturbed backwards and forwards by a few weeks, which gives you sufficient time resolution to see the impact of a marketing campaign, but not enough time resolution to make um, small value attacks uh, easy. So even though you can use anonymization in very, very constrained environments like this, where you know in advance exactly what sort of questions you'd ask of the database, there are still problems. For example, very recently, the Department of Health has started producing its own system for the same purpose as the source informatics system, and if you compare the outputs from the two systems, it's possible um, on occasion to deduce information about a particular doctor's prescribing habits. So it's it's very, very hard to do pseudonymization properly. You can do it only on problems that are highly constrained, where you know the specification well in advance, and where you do not have Um, big, rich data sets containing lots of information about people. Because remember, it takes only 33 bits of information to identify a human. So what sort of things can you do? Um, You can add random noise, as we did in the previous example. You can trim to remove outliers. Um, For example, when we looked at this uh, about 20 years ago, there was only one HIV-positive patient in Chichester, So what do you do um, with cases like that? Well, in the case of some diseases, you may have to accept that you have to run your stats on a regional or national basis rather than a local basis, because otherwise such small numbers leak information about people. What you can also do is random sampling. You can answer a query with respect to a subset of the records, and you choose the subset by 
for example, taking a cryptographic, a key cryptographic hash function of the query, so that if the query is repeated, you'll always go to the same subsample to get the answer. But if you make a slightly different query, you'll go to a quite, a quite different subsample. And, and this can introduce quite a lot of noise on, on top of the signal that a tracker attack would be trying to, to tease out. So what does theory tell us? Well, uh, researchers at Microsoft Research have um, developed a theory of differential privacy, uh, which is to statistical security as provable security as to cryptography, and it tells you how many queries you can make of a database before its privacy budget is exhausted, and it gives you some hints for techniques you can use. The problem is nobody in Whitehall is going to build a database at the cost of hundreds of millions of pounds if, as soon as 169 queries have been made, the privacy budget is exhausted and the database disappears in a puff of smoke. So that doesn't help us very much. Here's another example. Um, we used this, in fact, in briefing the Labour Party on this in 1996 before the election that Blair won. People were talking then about such a database. Suppose you can make a query which says, show me all 42-year-old women with a 9-year-old daughter who are both of psoriasis. Oh, step forward the MP for Cambridge. If you can ask a question that's that specific, you can pull one person out of 50 million. No problem. Or if you want a more up-to-date example, suppose you have got a database where you can ask, show me the records of all patients who had a cardioversion in Hammersmith Hospital on the 19th of November 2003. Step forward Tony Blair. Right? Uh, but if you can't link episodes together, you can't do public health, and if you can, then you can link the public episodes about someone's health to the private, perhaps more embarrassing episodes. That's why this problem is really, really intractable. If you're trying to do something which deals with longitudinally linked episodes of some particular patient's health, then um, basically the problem is hopeless. Now, we computer scientists have known this for 30 years, and we always got ignored by the policy people. Until a couple of years ago, when a law professor at Colorado, Paul Ohm, wrote a uh, paper in a learned law journal, and like law papers, it's you know, very, very long and with tons and tons of footnotes to stuff in law journals. Uh, but the fact that, that this material has now been made lawyer-readable rather than just engineer-readable makes it a little bit more difficult for the policy people to ignore. Um, so his paper, Broken Promises of Privacy, is really worth chasing up if you're interested in this kind of thing. So, bringing this back down to Earth, what are the practical implications? I mentioned that um, a year and a half ago, the Clinical Practice Research Data Link, which is run by the regulator, the MHRA, makes data available to researchers. Even I have been spammed at Cambridge asking if I want this data, right? And I'm a professor of computer science, not of medicine. Right? So they're really trying to push this stuff out and to create a big lobby for people who are addicted to it who will lobby against um, guys like Med Confidential. So I put in a freedom of information request for the anonymization mechanisms in CPRD, and they said, sorry, we can't tell you that because that would undermine security. Hey, any of you guys ever heard of Kirchhoff's principle? Right, that you can't expect to keep the design of your security system obscure? Well, that certainly applies here, because if people are going to use CPR data and rely on it, 
in articles they publish in the BMJ or the Lancet or whatever, then they will have to be told what sort of perturbation and other fiddling has been done with the data. Right? So the mechanisms are going to come out, like it or not. So if you, if you search for my name and CPRD or what they know.com, you can get that correspondence. So the next problem is care.data. This is the data grab that's going to be made from GPs. It would have been made about now. It's, they now say it's going to be in September. Now, when this was announced in 2013, the Secretary of State for Health said that existing opt-outs, such as from the summary care record, would be respected. And in July, Tim Kelsey said that the minister had got it wrong and they wouldn't be. And this is you know, very reminiscent of how Facebook does privacy, that right every year or so, they tear up all your privacy preferences and redesign the system and you have to opt out all over again. Now, you can understand why Facebook does that because you know, you're not their customer, you're their product and they want to sell all your stuff to the advertisers. But why is the NHS doing this? You know, the, the sums involved in, you know, uh, are pretty small. A, a thousand odd customers at several thousand pounds each, that's just a few million. Uh, you know, that's lost in the accounting errors. So next thing is the row over has. You may have noticed in the press that uh, a couple of weeks ago it came out that PA Consulting had got the entire file of HES records. That's about a billion episodes. And um, they put them in the Google Cloud because there are the tools there to manipulate big data sets a bit better than an Excel spreadsheet will do. And, um, of course, they don't seem to have stopped to think that Google doesn't have a data center in the UK. So this stuff is now overseas, contrary to so many shelf feet of NHS regulations on what you have to do if you're going to move identifiable personal data overseas. Now, the um, Department of Health guys said, well, this wasn't really sensitive because it was pseudonymized. So what you do then is you download and you read the specification of HES ID, that is the unique identifier that goes with each record in the hospital episode statistics uh, database. And it turns out that for most patients this contains your postcode and your date of birth. In some cases it contains your NHS number as well. Now the curious thing here is that HES also has in plain text your name and your address and your postcode and your date of birth. And it's then got the HES ID which manages up postcode and date of birth together to give a unique identifier. And the um, people at the Department of Health thought that if they had redacted the overt postcode and date of birth, then surely nobody would be clever enough to look at the manual and figure out how to extract these identifiers from the HES ID. Hey. So, well, it's, it's well known that Whitehall doesn't know how to write computer programs or to hire anybody who knows how to write computer programs, but... I mean, this, this, this is ridiculous. This is just beyond the bounds of even basic common sense. So um, that's an inquiry that's ongoing. And just yesterday, following some um, pushing and shoving from the guys at Med Confidential, the Information Centre reveals that HES data have been sold to a bit over 1,200 universities, firms, and others since the Information Centre was set up in 2013 and you can now download the list and you can have a look um, as I mentioned the, the HES ID usually contains postcode and date of birth and yet the Department of Health describes this as non-sensitive and there's a whole bunch of things this is just skimming through on the train um, 
A whole bunch of um, these sales were outside the NHS, typically to analytics companies, um, a number of drug marketing companies or surgical appliance marketing companies. One I picked up, number 408 on the spreadsheet, Imperial College, gets information with his ID, date of birth, home address and GP practice, and this is still marked non-sensitive, contrary, in fact, to the department's own guidelines. And then there's a whole ton of people who bought it for market analysis, benchmarking, internal efficiency stuff, and so on. So that's yesterday's news, and um, I'm sure it will take some time to sink in. But, um, you know, if you've ever been in hospital, that's your stuff out there in the hands of hundreds of different organizations. Um, many of them are no doubt respectable and well-meaning universities and so on. But the problem there is if a university has been given this information by the Department of Health and has been told it's non-sensitive, right, and I then come along to the university with a Freedom of Information Act request and ask for it, what defense does the university have in law against that? So the consequences of the Department of Health marking stuff as non-sensitive when in fact it was sensitive you know, could propagate in all sorts of unpleasant ways. There was a big tussle going on in Europe. Um, the UK Data Protection Act was deliberately made as weak as possible. And, and in fact, the European Union has several times threatened to sue Britain and the European Court of Justice for failing to implement it properly. The Germans finally got fed up and they're trying to push through a data protection regulation which would level up a little bit towards the standards in Germany. And there's a huge amount of lobbying over the clauses which will partially exempt medical data from this. Um, Article 81 exempts health service administration and Article 83 exempts research. And the way things stand at the moment, you would be deemed to consent to secondary use of your records uh, when you seek treatment unless you opted out at the time and you'd be forbidden to opt out retrospectively or even claim that consent was coerced. As you can imagine, there's lobbying about this in the European Parliament and yet Britain's medical charities and medical researchers are trying to make the situation even worse. So it looks like that will be stalled until after the European election in May. Uh, the one thing that is good news is that IV Finland is still case law and that doesn't seem likely to change any time soon. What's coming? DNA. Department of Health has got a 100,000 genomes project, which is supposed to do what it says on the tin, sequence 100,000 patients' uh, uh, DNA for both treatment and research. The problem is they propose to centralise all the sequence data, and you won't be allowed to have your DNA sequenced for treatment unless you consent for its use in research. So if you get lung cancer, for example, and um, you've got a squamous cell carcinoma, there's a treatment for about 10% of, of people with this condition, which they can determine with a DNA test. And if you have got a religious objection to DNA data being available um, to dozens and dozens of companies, for example, because you're a devout Catholic, well, then that's just your tough luck. Now, on the face of it, this is completely against medical ethics. And I am surprised and appalled um, that the chief medical officer and the regius professors at various universities are in on this scheme. It just seems completely over the top. Is nobody stopping and thinking the implications of the policy that they're writing? Does nobody stop and try and figure out what the implications for patients are going to be? 
Anyway, there's now a, 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 an inquiry at the Nuffield Bioethics Council where I'm in the working group, and I'm sure we'll have something to say about this in about a year's time. So what's the takeaway message? Well, basically, when dealing with health data, you have to think safety and privacy rather than security. And scale matters. Once you've got 50 million records in a system or even 5 million records in a system, the game is completely different because you've got tens of thousands of people having access. And once you expand that still further by making sensitive excerpts, large sensitive excerpts of the data available to hundreds of private companies as well, then there's an issue. Governance failure has real safety costs. Um, the best data that we have on this is from the, uh, come from the USA, where in the late 1990s the DHHS did a, a survey uh, of the effects that lack of confidence in medical confidentiality had on welfare, and they concluded um, that each year hundreds of thousands to millions of patients failed to seek treatment in time or at all, and this was not just for things like sexually transmitted diseases, but also for um, other things like cancer. So this is a hot issue. There are similar debates going on in other countries, the USA, Norway, Austria, and so on. And the point that I wish to make today is that, above all, we need honesty. We got into this jam because of dishonesty, because of people for their own bureaucratic or commercial reasons claiming that anonymized data were private when they aren't, and um, we have to stop claiming and stop letting ministers get away with claiming that pseudonyms protect privacy. Otherwise, you know, there's a risk to the whole open data enterprise that it could become contaminated and have its brand damaged um, by some quite unacceptable and unethical things that are being done in your name. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.